It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your faithfulness. It has been uh, quite a journey to come to this point uh, over the last several months, as Tommy was mentioning, uh, us coming together, us meeting together, and me visiting you several times this earlier this year. And I'm so thankful this morning that I can be here as your, as your pastor on this first official uh, Sunday as a Pennsylvanian. <laughs> it almost doesn't feel like that, if, uh, at least right now, but I know it will over the next several months and weeks. And uh, I have been thinking a lot about what I would want to say um, on this kind of first week uh, as your pastor. And I, I would invite you to turn to three separate passages of Scripture. The first is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll get there myself. And then also, keep your finger there, or I should say, keep your finger also in Acts chapter 8, and also Luke chapter 24. 2 Corinthians 1, Acts 8, and Luke 24. This morning I hope to kind of show you, kind of how each of these three passages uh, are combined to show one important, I think, very, very significant uh, message to us. My normal sort of, as you will get to know me and as I will get to know you, you'll know that my normal kind of preaching style is resoundly expositional, and that is just taking a text of Scripture and just trying to unpack it and figure out what it says and what it says to us. I'm not... A motivational speaker. I am. I'm not up here to give you some sort of self-help or life tips. I'm not a life coach. I can't uh, give you six uh, steps to successful living as some preachers like to do nowadays. Or I can't give you any life hacks that can teach you how to have your best life now. I can't. I can't give you that. If you're looking for that, I'm sorry. You might be disappointed uh, by the today's sermon and the sermons to follow. But I can give you Jesus. And that is always my goal. And every single time I step into a pulpit, my goal is to give you Jesus Christ. The only reason why we are here this morning is Him, Jesus Christ alone. And His word before us, as you open it, it is, it is the same type of word. It is, a, it is a book of Jesus. It is not The Bible is not a book of life hacks for spiritual success. It is a book of resurrection and redemption. It is a book of death and life. And today's message, though, is kind of uh, different. It might be, seem weird and it might seem odd for me, and I'm doing something a little out of character and preaching topically, but it is an exception I'm kind of comfortable making because the topic is Scripture itself. It is the Bible itself. And I say that because um, I would like to... You can just answer this question to yourself. You don't have to answer it out loud. But what is the Bible all about? As you read it from Genesis to Revelation, as you go through all of these chapters and books in your Bible, if you try and read it all through in a year, what is the main point? What is the message? There's 30,000 plus verses, almost 1,200 chapters and 66 points. Excuse me, 66 books in the Bible that you have in front of you. But what is it saying? What is its message to us? 
And I think that to me is one of the most urgent things I think Christians need to know. They need to know what their Bibles say. They need to know what all of those verses point to. They need to know what all of those books are churning forward and trying to get us to see. It only makes sense as Christians who have an entire system of faith derived from a book if you know what that book says. And I think that is perhaps one of the biggest problems with a lot of modern Christianity is their uh, utter lack of biblical understanding and biblical knowledge. I think more people are leaving the church because they don't know what their Bible says and therefore they don't know what church is for and they don't know exactly what to expect. And I think sometimes we kind of, uh, some preachers like to, uh, like I said earlier, preach those sort of life hack sermons. Here are some steps for, steps for successful living. Or others like to preach how I like to say out of the Aesop's Fables Bible. Here's a story about a man and here's the moral lesson we can learn from that story. But I don't think the Bible is here to teach us to live more morally. It's here to show us Jesus. It's here to show us the only and true Savior from our sins. There's a ministry actually that is, uh, finds his house in uh, the middle of Florida, in Maitland, Florida. It's called Legionnaire Ministries. And they, uh, every so often they put on this survey. It's called the State of Theology Survey. I invite you to read it. You can just Google that and you can look through sort of the, the results of this survey in which they, uh, they ask 3,000 or so American Christians um, uh, to answer some fundamental, some basic questions regarding the faith of, uh, regarding the Christian faith. Questions regarding theology and scripture and other important doctrines. And when I was re- reading this, this survey and the results from it, I was, uh, I was very startled. Especially by one of the statements. Statement 14 in the State of Theology survey says this. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. Now, uh, me as one who has grown up in church, I read this and I am immediately confronted by this statement because I know it to be very untrue. But I was startled to realize that 28% somewhat agreed with that statement. And 28% outright agreed with it. They outright agreed with the fact that the Bible is not literally true. It contains ancient myths. It contains some old fables. It contains, yes, maybe some Aesop's fables from which we can learn moral lessons. But it is not literally true. To me, that is a, that is a, a, a pressing statement on what we as an American church have grown up to believe. That this Bible that we hold in front of us, it has some good lessons in it. But it's not all true. There might be a slew of answers that you might think of when you ask the question, what's the point of the Bible? But I would say that the Bible has a singular message, and its message is all true. I think though varied in in form, varied in style, varied in structure, the Bible's plot centers on Jesus Christ. And in these three passages before us this morning, we can learn just how it is, it, it is that the Bible is all about Jesus and how it is that this Bible is all true. I want to show you those three distinct passages, and we have three distinct points from them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you can look at verse 17, or we'll read a few verses after verse 17 to show you Paul's assertion. 
The first point I like to make is Paul's assertion. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17, When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yea, yea and nay, nay. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. He's beginning this second letter to the church of Corinth here. This is a very personal letter from the Apostle Paul. He writes at the very beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Most often, Paul would start his letters as he was saying he's a servant. But here he says that he is an apostle. It's because he is writing in this letter to sort of vindicate his apostleship. It was called into question by this church because he failed to visit them. If you go back to chapter 16 of the previous book in 1 Corinthians... He says in chapter 16 verse 5. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia. For I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide yea in winter with you. That ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. He wrote to them promising them that he would come visit them. That he would come stay with them. And yes even as he says winter with them. He was going to be with them for an extended period of time. But he writes, unfortunately, that he was not able to see them. He says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1, For we would not, brethren, have you be ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. The Corinthians, for whatever reason, took offense at the fact that Paul, an apostle, was not able to visit them. They felt as if he was uh, perhaps disingenuous, that he had uh, told them something that wasn't true. And therefore, what else can we trust from this apostle, this Paul? They assumed that he must have been sort of of, of fickle passions, of unstable mind. He wasn't trustworthy. Such is why he writes in verse 13, For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. And I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus He's writing to them. He's asserting the fact that what he has said is not true, is true, that their assumptions of him are not true, and that their message to them is no different than what was previously delivered. He's writing to assert his apostleship, his authority as an apostle of God. And he addresses the unfortunate fact of his hindrance of visiting them in verse 15. He says, and in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit, that ye might be rejoicing again at a second visit from us. And he says, and to pass by you, in verse 16, into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and, of, and to be of you brought on my way toward Judea. But he denies this idea that he was wishy-washy. That he was fickle. That he was unstable. He says when I therefore was thus minded. Did I use lightness? Was I not sincere in what I wrote? When I wrote to you that I wanted to visit you. Was I, uh, was I insincere in that? He says or do I purpose. Or the things that I purpose. Do I purpose according to the flesh. 
That with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. It wasn't maybe. It wasn't a kind of, sort of, he's saying. It wasn't uh, something that wasn't sincere. It wasn't something that he was deriving out of the flesh just to say it. His promise to them wasn't something that he was just coming up with out of the flesh, as he writes in verse 17. It was God that was directing him. It was God that was leading him. God was hindering him, yes, even in this moment. Even though he wasn't able to fulfill his promise, God was the one who was directing his steps. His message wasn't fickle. It was fixed resolutely on Christ. Such is why he says again in verse 18, But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. In him was yes. He is our message. And he goes on to say in verse 20, For all the promises of God in him, that is in Jesus Christ, are yea And in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who also hath sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. He writes and he's saying, this is our message. This was our message before and this is our message now. That yes, we were not able to visit you, but Christ alone is our foundation and he should be yours as well. He is your fixed foundation, your certainty. All of these promises that we were relaying to you, they are yes and amen in Christ. They find their fulfillment in Christ alone. That regardless of what men may do, regardless of what men may say, your fulfillment, your foundation, your promise, your assurance of God's truth is Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills all of the promises of the Old Testament by being their fulfillment himself. This is what Paul was asserting. This is what Paul was trying to get them to see. That they are yes and amen. They are faithfully finished in Jesus Christ. That all of the words of scripture are firm because of that son of God. They are fixed because of that son of God. Elsewhere in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is given the designation, the Amen. And such is what we find here. He is God's Amen. All of the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, Amen. That's because Jesus is our guarantee. He is our assurance that the winds and the waves of life may come and go, but Jesus is our fixed fixed foundation. And this is Paul's witness to them. This is his assertion. And that notwithstanding this church's perspective of him personally, their actions, their seal, their earnest, their security was Christ alone. Was the gospel alone, which exalts the name of Jesus alone. And he, his commendation was all that they needed. Their message as apostles was Christ Alone, It was that and it will always be that. This was Paul's assertion. He asserts that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. But next, turn to chapter 8 of of the book of Acts. Because not only do we have Paul's assertion, we have here in the the book of Acts chapter 8, Philip's illustration. Paul asserts 
that all of Scripture points towards Jesus. But is that really true? Well, I think here in this good little scene, the scene of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, you might be familiar with it, illustrates this point for us very clearly. Look again at verse 26 of chapter 8. The scriptures say, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot. Acts, you know, is the relation uh, to us of the history of the New Testament church. It relates to us the amazing way that God used men like Paul and like Philip and like Peter to establish the New Testament church by the preaching of his resurrection. And in verse 26, we have this story regarding the apostle, the preacher, Philip. He was told by God, by God himself to leave his current ministry, which you can read about earlier in the chapter, which was thriving. And he told him to, told him to go down to Gaza, which it says, which is desert. This is our modern day Gaza Strip. And in verse 27 and 28, Philip encounters this Ethiopian eunuch, this official in the service of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He was her treasurer. He was a high-ranking officer in her kingdom. And God tells him in verse 29 to join up with this Ethiopian eunuch. He says, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Go and engage this official from Ethiopia in a conversation. Go entertain his questions, you might say. And in verse 30, I love what it says. Verse 30, And Philip ran. Thither to him, to the chariot. He obeys God's command immediately. He runs towards him. And I think this is very uh, specific detail mentioned by Luke recording in this book. It says that he runs up to him. And that's important if once we realize what this eunuch is reading. Philip runs to the chariot and inquires what the eunuch is reading and if he understands it. Look at verse 30 again. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, which is Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? The eunuch, though, is confused. Look at verse 31. And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. This eunuch is confused. He doesn't necessarily understand what the meaning of this scripture was. We know this scripture as Isaiah chapter 53. And I think that's significant because if, imagine, if you will, for a second, if Philip had not ran up to the chariot. I don't know how far away he was or how fast of a reader this Ethiopian eunuch was. But perhaps if he, he answered God's call to go and, and engage in a conversation with this Ethiopian official. If he hadn't run, if he had just kind of sauntered up to the chariot, he might have missed his moment. 
He might have missed this amazing chapter from what he was reading. And he might have not been able to uh, preach the same things to this eunuch. But he ran up to him. And he was able to meet him in the midst of uh, that most amazing chapter from Isaiah 53. You know, you know uh, movements in this, day, uh, in this day and age. It's interesting that this eunuch is reading from the Old Testament. But there were movements in the first century that were sort of tired of the common sort of plurality of gods that sort of actually sought after this sort of monotheism of Judaism. It, it, they realized that, the, that there was a lot of good morals that a lot of these Jews had and so they, they were seeking after some sort of uh, uh, morals to give them some sort of uh, establishment, some sort of foundation. And I think that's significant when you realize what Philip ends up preaching to this eunuch. And the significance of that scene that he's reading from, from Isaiah 53. But look again at verse 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or some other man? He's again, he's perplexed by these words. Is Isaiah referring to himself? Or is he referring to some other person? What is he talking about? Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Notice what Philip preaches to him. He doesn't preach to him the morals from which this monotheism was gaining in popularity. He doesn't preach unto him the the rigid rules that he was going to have to follow. He doesn't preach unto him some mystic words of prophecy. He preaches unto him the, the name Jesus alone. From this scripture he preaches that significant son of God. Who came to be our redemption from sins. He doesn't preach a complex system of rules that must be emulated. He doesn't convey sort of this labyrinth of laws that must be followed. In order to get into this um, new uh, religion. Philip preaches a person. He preaches a man. He preaches a God man. He preaches unto him Jesus The fulfillment of Isaiah 53, he was asserting, is then found in the person of Jesus Christ. His passion and death is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which echoes what Paul was saying. That he is the fulfillment, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises. So we might say that, as it says in Isaiah 53, that by his stripes we are healed. And Jesus' wounds is where we find our peace and our rest and our security. Such is what Philip was preaching to this Ethiopian official. This encounter by the Apostle Philip illustrates something that Paul asserts that we already saw in a marvelous way. That, but it's one thing if two uh, preachers from the New Testament were to say this, right? Paul is saying that everything in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And then Philip is illustrating that in a very practical way. That everything in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But are they accurate in that saying? Is that really how we are to read our Bibles? Well, turn with me to the last passage, which is Luke chapter 24. We have Paul's assertion 
in Philip's illustration. And here in Luke chapter 24, we have Jesus' declaration. Luke chapter 4 to me is a very powerful chapter. And it relays something that we've been talking about in a very real way. And I think it really does show us how to read our Bibles. Look at Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. And behold, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples, went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. There's these two disciples, they are walking on the way to Emmaus. They're trying to make sense of what they have just witnessed. And if you know uh, from Luke chapter 24, they have just witnessed the crucifixion. They are still talking about the fact that their master and teacher has been crucified in a very public and very humiliating way. But I love who comes and visits them. Look at verse 15. And it came to pass... That while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? (laughs) Jesus shows up right in the midst of them as they're journeying on their way. But they don't recognize him. They don't uh, see him for who he is. And he asks them, what are, you talking, what are you talking about? What is this conversation that you are having that is making you so sad? What is bringing you so down? And one of the disciples, look at verse 18. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast thou not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? Basically, they're saying, um, where have you been? Where have you been the last couple days? Have you missed all the uproar of this one who was crucified? The disciples, they try and explain themselves in verse 19. Look at, and he said unto them, what things? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, a mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death. And have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. And yea, certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which had said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. They explained themselves for their gloomy disposition. We trusted that it had been this man. We trusted that it was this Jesus of Nazareth. We thought it was this guy who was going to fulfill uh, their understandings of the Old Testament. You see, in the first century, there was a prevailing idea that the Messiah, which was promised throughout the Old Testament, was going to be Israel's champion. A champion in such a way that he was going to come and overthrow the Roman government. That when he comes, he was going to bring a sword and he was going to overthrow the rule from which they had been enduring and from which they had been enslaved. And he was going to restore Israel to its former glory. 
He was going to be, yes, the son of David, but he was going to bring in David's kingdom once again. And all the height and magnificence that followed that. This Messiah, they thought, was going to usher in a violent displacement of Roman rule. And he was going to deal in swift justice on all of Israel's enemies. And he would bring in a great and a sweeping reform of all society and in all politics and in all government. There was going to be a reform back to the ways of when David was their ruler. And you can understand their sadness then. If they thought that, that this Messiah was this Jesus of Nazareth. And yet they thought that he was going to bring in this new reign. You can imagine their sadness when he was crucified. You can imagine their thoughts that when Christ died, all of their hopes and dreams died with him. They thought that it was him. And now it's been three days. He is for sure dead. And yet we can't find his body. We had women come and tell us that he is not there. We had other men come and tell us that he is not there. So, but we know that he is dead because it's past three days. And we don't know what is going on. And we are confused now because we thought it was him. I love what Jesus responds to them in verse 25. After he is hearing their explanation for their gloominess. Jesus said unto them, O fools, O fools and slow of heart. To believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Basically, he's seeming to say to them, "Uh, haven't you been reading your Bibles? Or he might say, haven't you been reading your Bibles rightly? Because if you were, you were to see that this is what all the prophets were showing. This is what all the prophets and all of them were saying. That Christ should have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. He's saying to them, wasn't this the point? From the very beginning, wasn't this what the Messiah was prophesied to do? And thereby he's revealing that their hopes were too earthly. That their hopes were too low. They thought that he was just going to establish an earthly kingdom. But Jesus is saying to them, he is going to establish a heavenly kingdom. And look at verse 27, because he says, or it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, expounded unto these disciples and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. He begins at the very beginning of the Old Testament and he shows them how all of them are churning forward to show the the story of the Bible revolves around him. It revolves around Jesus. He is the center upon which all of these stories revolve around. He shows how uh, all the things that they have witnessed uh, find their fulfillment in his person and find their fulfillment in his coming. Look later in chapter 24 at verse 44. Here now he is with all of the rest of the disciples and apostles. And look at verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you. While I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses. And in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. 
Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. As Jesus is dining with them, he is reaffirming this truth. That he is the point. He is the message. I am the fulfillment of all of these things written from Moses to the end of your Bibles. And this is his declaration to them. Just as Paul's assertion was. Just as Philip's illustration was. That all scripture is about Jesus. From beginning to end. He is the point. He is the message. He is the narrative. And Christ reveals that this has been the point all along. He says right there in verse 44 again. That all of the things which were written in the law. All the things that the prophets were prophesying about. All the things that you can find in the Psalms. They find their fulfillment in me. And as Jesus was ministering and preaching and performing miracles. He was revealing himself as this Messiah. The Messiah who had come to suffer. The Messiah who had come to establish the remission of sins. He was God in the flesh who had come to rescue flesh and blood by his very own blood. And this is what the apostles had failed to pick up on. They had missed the forest for the trees. You you know that old saying that you can miss the forest for the trees because you are so close to it you forget the big picture. They had missed Jesus' message by making it all about themselves. If you read the Gospels, and someday I hope to preach through some of those Gospels, and you see just how fickle the disciples were, and how they completely were missing the points that Jesus were trying to make. That as soon as, as the disciples, I think of the chapters in the book of Mark, chapters 8 and 9, And in Mark chapter 8, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Not just a king, not just a a powerful teacher. He says, you are the Christ. And then in chapter 9, the very next chapter, the disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They miss the point. They, They fail to understand all that Jesus had come to do until this moment, I think. Until the cross. It was then, I think, and then the following resurrection, until the crucifixion and resurrection, I think they were blinded by what they had always been told to believe about the Messiah. And here, it's almost as if the light bulb went off. They were fundamentally changed by the crucifixion and resurrection of their Lord. It says that they understood. Verse 45, then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures That all of them concerned him. They went from a band of cowards. Who hid with doors securely shut. For fear of the Jews after events of the cross. To a company of messengers. Who finally understood what the gospel was was all about. You read about that in John chapter 20. Where right after the crucifixion. the, The disciples are hiding They're hiding away, it says, for fear of the Jews. And their doors are securely fastened. And what happens? Jesus walks right through the doors. (laughs) And there he shows them his body. His resurrected body. With all of its scars still there. 
The apostles then, as you read in, in the book of Acts, you can see that change. They've gone from that, grand, that band of cowards to this company of messengers, apostles, who are resolutely finding their purpose in the resurrection. And they're preaching all throughout the book of Acts about not just the resurrected Christ, but the fact of the resurrection. In fact, if you were to look through a lot of the discourses and sermons from Acts, from Peter and Paul and others, Stephen, they find their purpose and their point in the fact that the resurrection was true, that it was real. They weren't fickle as Paul was asserting there in 2 Corinthians 1. They were established on the fact that this resurrection, it was the real deal. It wasn't something they made up. It wasn't something that they came up with themselves. All throughout the book of Acts. They are uh, completely um, sort of surrounded by officials. And and men who would seek to uh, harm them. To get them to discredit their faith. And they keep coming back that this resurrection was true. They stand confidently in the book of Acts all throughout the, the, these fake trials and these mockeries. And all because they understood this fact. That Jesus was God himself. That their teacher that they had been with for three years on this earth as they saw ministering and performing miracles was God in the flesh. And that all that they had witnessed and all that they had read was pointing to him. You can really say that in the aftermath of the cross, these disciples found their purpose. And so must we. Because this is what Jesus' ministry was all about. It was what it was always about. Revelation and redemption. Actually, look with me. I'm going to read a verse from John chapter 5. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. But John 5 verse 38, Jesus says this. And ye have not... His word abiding with you. For whom he hath sent him ye believe not. It says in verse 39 of John chapter 5. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. He's telling the Pharisees. You think that you have life by fulfilling all the rules. By checking all the boxes. By trying to go beyond the law. And what you were doing to obey me. But I'm telling you. You find life by finding it in me. Because they testify of me. All of those laws. All of those things are testifying of me. They are telling my story as the God man. This is the central theme of this word that we have before us. This is the central theme of God's work in us. It's showing us Jesus. That we have remission of sins as it says here in Luke 24. That we have redemption from death in Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation. This is the work of God. It's showing you Jesus. The seed of the woman. The promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent. And I would say that we cannot understand the whole of Scripture or its parts unless we understand that this whole book is about Jesus Christ. He is the climax of every theme in the Bible. And He's everywhere in your Scriptures. He is the promised seed from Genesis chapter 3. He is the brazen serpent that must be lifted up from Numbers 21 and John chapter 3. He is the true and better prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
He is God with us from Isaiah chapter 7. And he is the promised son of David and the true and better king of Israel from Isaiah chapter 9. This is Jesus. He's being shown to us throughout all of these pages of scripture. He is the true and better version of every hero and character in the Bible. And where they might have failed, Jesus succeeds. This is why Paul later writes in the book of Romans that we have a second Adam. Just like the first Adam failed in the garden, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeds in a garden. And this is where we must see, just like the apostles here in Luke chapter 24, that Jesus himself is the interpretive key to our Bibles. They don't tell some mythic, ancient story. They don't tell some Aesop's fables from which we can derive moral lessons, from which we can better ourselves. This Bible before us tells us the story of Jesus Christ, who would be our remission from sins, who would stand in our place to save us from hell. It tells the story of how Jesus can love fickle and frail and feeble and failing people. Like those we read about in the Old Testament. Like we must recognize ourselves as. See when I read the Bible. I read it as one who recognizes the fact that I'm just like these people in it. I'm feeble. I'm frail. Sometimes I'm faithless. Sometimes I doubt. Sometimes I question what is happening in this life. And I realize the fact that that's the point. Because Jesus is the ever faithful one. And he has come to these faithless ones to be their faith. There is no more crucial subject to read about than that. That this Bible is all about the person and work of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus himself declares here. And just as Paul asserts in 2 Corinthians. And just as Philip illustrated in Acts chapter 8. That their Bibles were interpreting Jesus Christ. And they stood confidently on that. Because they knew that all of scripture is pure Christ. That's a quote from the great reformer Martin Luther. He says this in one of his sermons. Thus all of scripture is pure Christ. God's and Mary's son. Everything is focused on this son so that we might know him distinctively and in that way see the Father and the Holy Spirit eternally as one God. To him who has the son, the scripture is an open book and the strong his faith is in Christ becomes, the more brightly will the light of scripture shine for him. The more we see that the Bible is pointing us to Jesus, the more we will see, yes, our sin And the fact that we have a Savior in Jesus. And just like Paul says in in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That he desires to preach nothing to them. But Jesus Christ and him crucified. I with the same boldness aspire to preach that same thing. Nothing unto you but Christ crucified. Christ resurrected for our sins. Christ the true and better king of our lives. I'm saddened to say I can't give you tips and tricks on how to live better or to live more successfully or to how to make yourselves better. But I can give you Jesus. Just like Paul, just like Philip, just like Jesus himself gave us his body. I can give you Jesus. 
Because that's what this book is about. And such is my desire. I've been praying for you as a church that I might be able to give you a robust biblical theology. A robust, a grand knowledge of what this word is about. Because what is it about? Is it about Jesus himself? He is our sermon. He is our purpose. He is what we boast in. We boast in his cross. We boast in his life. We boast in his resurrection. Not anything that has to do with ourselves. Because I think as we see that all scripture is pure Christ. We will begin to read the Bible rightly. Not as ancient myth. Not as literary folk tales. But as the truth of God's word. Because it relays to us the truth of God's purpose. And God's person. And in it we will read it from a position of absolute victory. You know you get to read the Bible already knowing the end. The fact that Jesus wins. He is the victor. He is the one who has defeated death itself by dying himself. We get to read it knowing the end. Secured of the end. We get to read it as people who have found their faith in one who has come to them. This is what the Bible tells us. It tells us a story about Jesus. I'm going to close with the following quote. And it comes from, I think, perhaps one of the greatest theological books that has been written the last several years. And it's actually a children's book. It is the, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And she says the following in the preface to this book, which I think is absolutely astounding. She says, Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, and sometimes on purpose. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell us this story. And at the center of the story, there is Jesus. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. That missing piece is realizing that all scripture is pure Christ. And realizing that he is the one who has come to save us from our sins. Let us bow our heads in prayer this morning.